But I want to begin by saying that to be a Christian, to be a Christian, you must also be a historian. To be a Christian, you must be a historian. See, you've got to care about history if you're a believer. And the reason you do is because everything we believe as believers was revealed in the dirt and grime of actual history, right? And you understand that everything that we believe, everything that we affirm is founded on the flesh and blood and brick and mortar of actual events that really happened in time and space. God made the world in six actual days. Adam was a real historical person. Eve was a real historical woman. The fall was an actual historical fall. God became a baby and was born in Bethlehem. He became a literal historical human being. He was baptized in the Jordan River. That still exists. He died at 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon. He conquered the grave at 6 a.m. on Sunday morning, morning, securing our redemption. You understand Christianity is not mystical. It is historical. We're not New Age philosophers playing with the theoretical. We are New Covenant believers who stake our souls on the historical. Which means at the end of the day, Christianity is authentic history that you have to believe to be saved and to gain eternal life. Which makes sense, right? We get that. The catch is, the catch is, get this now, is that on our own, by ourselves, we can't believe those historical facts unless God awakens our souls to do so. I'll say that again, because that's a mighty tough pill to swallow, and yet swallow it we must, because the Bible is clear and unmistakable. Because of our horribly fallen condition, spiritually dead, blinded by sin, hearts of stone, it is impossible to believe the facts of the gospel in a saving way. We cannot do that on our own. People can intellectually agree that the facts of the gospel are historical, but they can't believe those in a saving way without the supernatural. In other words, to get saved, the Bible is absolutely clear. You need proof to believe, and you need power to believe it. That's the mystery of saving faith. That's exactly what John unfolds in our text this morning. And you see, the reason why John does is because John is not content to just let us use really important words, like faith, for instance, and not have any idea what they mean. Now, John feels a pastoral responsibility to tell you everything you need to know about saving faith, which is exactly what he does in 1 John chapter 5. You see, this whole chapter, 1 John chapter 5, it is all about faith, you understand, what it means, how you got it, what it looks like, 
What you should believe in and how you know what you believe is true. It's all here in 1 John chapter 5. And this is a perfect way to end this letter because John's entire agenda, the whole time, has been to give you assurance. Confidence is the issue for John. Not confidence in yourselves or anything that we have done, but confidence that the treasure of eternal life is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, then John turns a corner and he digs a layer deeper to give his people assurance at the deepest possible level, namely by opening the hood and showing them all the intricacies of saving faith. Because you understand the best way to tell if your faith is real is by scuba diving beneath the service to see what faith in Christ actually means. That's precisely what 1 John chapter 5 is. And I'll just tell you, we need this. We need this, not just our church, but the church in America really, really needs 1 John chapter 5. And the reason of that is because in this land of name it, claim it Christianity, in a land flowing with cheap grace and easy believism, where the church has been nourished for decades on low-calorie theology and a self-esteem gospel stripped down to a bunch of man-centered felt needs. Because of, that, because of that, it's all the more urgent to learn to think the deep thoughts of the Bible with the Bible. And instead of always looking for ways to simplify and strip things down, that instead we see how far down we can go into the depths of the Bible to see the buried treasure that stirs our souls. The time is now to be, to be a rugged people with a robust doctrine of sovereign grace. That this is not a God who asks people's permission to save them, but rather raises souls from the dead without their permission or their consent. Because that's exactly the kind of John, God, God that the Apostle John provides. So let's go to the text. Outside of Hebrews chapter 11, the greatest chapter on faith in the entirety of the Bible, and here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text two complementary factors. Two complementary factors of saving faith required for bold assurance and unshakable joy. And that's what you want, right? Bold assurance and unshakable joy. So two complementary factors of saving faith required for bold assurance and unshakable joy. The first complementary factor is this. Number one, to believe you need historical proof and spiritual power. To believe you need historical proof and spiritual power. Because hand meat glove. Hand of historical proof, meet the glove of spiritual power to believe that proof. That's exactly where John goes, and I'll tell you why that's important in a while, but first look at verses 6 through 8. Look at verses 6 through 8 and see if you can follow John's logic here. This is a, this is a crazy text. Considered the second or third hardest text in the entirety of John's letter but it is profound. Verses 6 through 8, look what John says. He says, This is the one who came through water and through blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and by the blood. 
And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Because three are they who testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and literally the Greek text says, and the three are one. I know what you're thinking. That is a bizarre paragraph. <laughs> blood and water and spirit, and yet these three are one, and maybe you're thinking, what does that even mean? What does any of that have to do? What, what, what relevance does that have to my life? To which I reply, be very careful. Don't judge John too quickly here because you'd be surprised at the treasures that lurk in the secret corners of the Bible. And in fact, this text right here is one of the Bible's best kept secrets because contained in it is one of the most profound explanations for how you came to believe the gospel. Let's take it in two parts. Let's start first with the historical proof. The historical proof for our faith. Look what John says again in verse 6. This is the one who came through water and through blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and by the blood. Now, you've got to remember what John just told us in verses 1 through 5. He just got done saying that our faith in Christ is the result of the regenerating power of God. Remember that? That because of our inborn condition of spiritual death, God had to make us alive first, or we were never going to believe and be saved, which means even the very faith you placed in Christ is a gift from God himself. But you see, that doesn't mean that there wasn't gospel proof and truth. That doesn't mean that there weren't historical facts and realities that persuaded you to believe, because there totally were. What I'm saying is, it's not as if the gospel and proof and truth are over here somewhere, and that God, apart from those things, made you alive. No. In fact, those very gospel facts were the very mechanism that he used to make you alive in the first place. And what do I mean when I say gospel proof and facts? What I mean is, I mean water, and I mean blood, and everything in between. Which is what John means. Look again what he says in verse 6. This is the one who came through water and through blood, Jesus Christ. Now, John is very clever. In fact, John is brilliant, because when, when he says that Christ came through water, that when he came or arrived through water and blood, believe it or not, that language there of came and arrived is code for the Messiah. It is. You see, over the centuries, the expectations of the arrival of the Messiah were so eagerly anticipated that eventually his title became the coming one or the expected one or the one to come. That's a title for the Messiah, and it's used like half a dozen times in the Gospels. Matthew eleven three, 3, John the Baptist, are you the one to come? Or should we wait for somebody else? And you see, what's really interesting is John uses that very same term here, and yet you notice this is so brilliant and creative. He uses that term in the past tense. Do you see it? The one to come has already come. He's already arrived. 
But you also notice, and it sounds so weird and cryptic at first, but John says that Christ came through water and through blood. Meaning what? What does it mean that he arrived through water and blood? Water and blood meaning what, John? And there's a few theories floating around out there. But in the end, I think what John means by water and blood is that he means the baptism of Christ on the one hand and the bloody atoning death of Christ on the other. The bookends of his messianic life and ministry. In other words, Christ verified his messianic identity and his messianic ministry through his watery baptism at the beginning and through his bloody, wrath-bearing, sacrificial death at the end. Water and blood. Do you see? And I think John means those two things at the end and everything in between, these historical facts verified his messianic identity. That, that's what I mean by historical gospel facts and proof. You need something to believe in, something historical, something tangible, something that actually happened, or you can't believe and receive eternal life. That's what John means by water and blood. Now, John does have a point here, and it's a real doozy, but, but hang on, because notice first his very careful clarification. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, Christ came through water and through blood, not by water only, but by the water and by the blood. Translation, Christ was not only baptized with water, but he also died a bloody death for sinners, right? My question is, why does John even need to say this? Why does John need to clarify this? Why does he need to tell them, remind them, look, he not only was baptized, he also died, as if they didn't already know that. And you see, the reason why John reiterates, the reason why John lingers here is precisely because the physical crucifixion of Jesus was the very thing denied by these creepy cult leaders who had crept into the church. And you remember, these new age, hippie heretics had a real problem with physical matter, with physical bodies, to them, the physical body was evil and wicked and was only a prison of the divine spirit that lived inside of you. And so there, therefore, there's no way that God was ever going to become a man, let alone be crucified. I mean, apparently there was an inconsistency here. Apparently you could baptize a ghost, but you couldn't crucify a ghost. And so they flat out deny the literal, physical, actual, bloody death of God in human flesh. And John slams the buzzer on that kind of garbage and says, no, that doesn't work. This is the one who came through water and through blood. Which means, which means to be saved, you must embrace and adore the blood-soaked cross of Christ or there is no salvation. To be a Christian and gain eternal life, you must embrace the scandal of the God-man crucified. And so the question is, have you done so? Have you embraced and do you adore the God-man crucified? Have you truly embraced the blood-soaked cross of Christ as the only means of eternal life? Because you understand, you don't get to pick and choose about Christ what it is that you prefer. 
You can't be like the Jesus seminar scholars of the 80s and the 90s. You ever hear about these guys? The joke, man. A bunch of self-proclaimed scholars got together in 1985, and they formed what they called the Jesus Seminar. And their goal was to find the real historical Jesus by sifting through the Gospels and determining what was historical and sifting out what was, what was mythological, sifting out what was fictional, and then reporting it to the public. That's exactly what these guys in John's day did, and John will have none of it. Because to be saved and gain access to eternal life, you must accept the watery and the bloody facts of Jesus Christ and everything he accomplished. And I hope you have all done that this morning. That brings us to part two. The second part, because you see, John is doing something complex here, as always. You understand, he wants to teach us about the intricacies of saving faith. And the thing about faith is on the one hand, you need actual evidence rooted in history, like water and blood. You need something to believe in. But at the exact same time, you need supernatural power from God to believe that evidence. Which brings us to part two, supernatural power. To believe, you need supernatural power. Look what John says at the end of verse six. It's kind of a puzzle, but this is so profound. He says, Jesus Christ came through water and through blood, not by water only, but by the water and by the blood. Here it is. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. Because three are they who testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are literally, it says, one. And again, I know how that sounds, kind of cryptic and weird. But you see, what John just did there was give us a devastating insight for how we came to believe the facts of the gospel in a saving way. And how we came to believe the facts of the gospel, get this now, was through the internal, persuading, testifying work of the Holy Spirit himself. That's what John means when he says the Spirit is the one who testifies. So I believe John is describing unique work of God through the Spirit that makes faith in the facts of the gospel possible. In other words, there's this complementary factor about saving faith where on the one hand, you need actual facts rooted in history, something to believe in. But on the other hand, you need the soul awakening work of the spirit to believe those historical facts in a saving way. And John calls that soul awakening work of the spirit testifying. The spirit is the one who testifies. And do you know what it means to testify? It means to witness to persuade, to convince, to supply all the evidence you need to believe the facts of the case. That's precisely what the Spirit does. Not by giving us additional revelation outside the Bible or by whispering in your ear somehow that this is true. No, none of that. But rather through an internal work of the soul that opens blind eyes to see the beauty of Christ and to believe and get saved. That's what this is. For anyone 
for anyone to get saved. The Spirit must shine a divine and supernatural light into the soul so that blind and ruined sinners can believe. I mean, you see what John's doing for us. He is diagnosing for us. He is interpreting for us our own experience. Because from our vantage point, our perspective, it looks like we were the ones who figured it out without any aid or assistance. And John blows the lid off our experience and says, no, that's not true. It's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. I mean, you were persuaded. And you did figure it out, to be sure. But only after the Spirit intervened and awakened you to figure it out. That's what John means. In other words, what this is, is a cochlear implant of the soul. You know what a cochlear implant is, don't you? Some of you very much do because you have kids or grandkids who have one. And what it is, it's a medical scientific way to make those born deaf hear once again. It's a surgically implanted device that enables children especially to hear their parents call their name, to hear the sights and the songs, hear the sights, to hear the songs and the sounds that you and I hear every single day, we just take it for granted. The witness of the spirit is the cochlear implant of the soul. The spirit makes born deaf sinners hear the call of Christ in the gospel and respond in saving faith. And you can just feel, you can just feel the implications of this, can't you? The way the witness of the spirit shapes, must shape our perspectives. Because if that's true, if that's true, that faith in the facts of the gospel could only come as a result of the soul-awakening witness of the Spirit, and it is, then therein lies one of the deepest secrets to overcoming boasting and pride in our lives, isn't it? Because it reminds us that even the very faith we placed in Christ was a gift of sovereign grace. We were never going to believe in the water and blood of Jesus without the witness of the Spirit. And so therefore, we have the right to feel disgusted by and superior over nobody. Because unless this happened to us, we would still be blind and slaves to our sin. But again, what this does is raise the question, how does the Spirit do this? How does this eye-opening, ear-opening, soul-awakening work of the Spirit actually happen? How does this actually work? And John answers the question in verse 6 and following. Look what he says. He says, and the Spirit is the one who testifies. Explain that, John. How does the Spirit do this witness, awakening work in the soul? Next clause. Because the Spirit is the truth. And three are they who testify. The spirit and the water and the blood and the three are one. Did you catch it? What was John's explanation for how the spirit awakens the soul to believe the facts of the gospel? What did he say? He said, the spirit is the truth. Help us, John. What does that even mean? The very least that means 
is they are inseparable. The Spirit and the truth of God's Word are so inseparable that John can even declare that the Spirit is the truth, and what he means is that the truth is the instrument of the Spirit that he uses to awaken souls from the dead. It's his key to unlock the tomb of the human heart. The truth is the Spirit's fire to melt the heart's resistance. The truth is the Spirit's wrecking ball to demolish the walls of human opposition. It's never, it is never, it is never the Spirit or the truth. It's not even the Spirit and the truth. It's the Spirit working in and through the truth. Which means if you want to see your kids and your grandkids and your coworkers and those most hostile to the gospel get saved, then you need simply to let the truth out of it, the lion of truth out of its cage and let the spirit go to work on the soul. That's what John means in verses seven and eight when he says there are three who testify. Meaning, you need all three witnesses to make faith work. You need the water and the blood, witnesses one and two. You need the historical facts of the gospel and the life of Christ. You do not get saved without those things. But the catch is, those historical facts ain't any good without witness number three. The spirit who awakens the soul to believe them. So you see it, don't you? You see it, the, the gripping implications that John wants us to have about faith here. This whole chapter is all about faith. That There's gripping implications that, that John wants us to see, and there are three implications at least. You have your notes. These are all in there. But number one, a God-awakened faith is a God-glorifying faith. A God-awakened faith is a God-glorifying faith. See, I think what John is doing here is he is shooting the legs off the stool of human boasting. Although 100% responsible to believe and rightly condemned if we don't believe, John wants us to see at the end of the day, faith is no humanly engineered work of the will of man, but instead is the result of the Spirit's work who birthed our very faith into existence. And what that does, what that does is kill the credit that we would like to take for our faith and reserves the glory for God alone. Implication number two of the Spirit's witness. A, a God-awakened faith is a persevering faith. A God-awakened faith is a persevering faith. In other words, I think John is comforting us at the deepest possible level by showing us that a spirit-awakened faith is built to last and that the still by his word so things to come together to make faith a reality. You need proof and you need power. You need proof to believe and you need power to believe it. You need the hand of the gospel facts rooted in history on the one hand, but at the same time, you need the glove of the Spirit's power who enables us to believe those facts on the other. But you see, 
The sovereign work of the Spirit doesn't make our evangelism meaningless. Rather, He guarantees that our evangelism can not possibly fail. And what that does is free us to be a people bold with the gospel. And that's the first complementary factor of saving faith that you need for assurance. Namely, you need historical proof and spiritual power, which brings us to the second complementary factor of saving faith. Number two, you need inward persuasion and divine causation. You need inward persuasion and divine causation. In other words, John takes what he just said in verses 6 through 8, and he doesn't merely repeat it, but he drills down deeper evermore inside of it because he wants us to see what faith is from the inside out. Because you know the difference, at least one of the many differences between us and Mormons, is that Mormons believe what they do because of a burning in their soul called the burning of the bosom. Not kidding. They believe what they do because this thing called the burning in the bosom that tells them that what they believe is true even when the facts of history and the Bible disagree. Seriously. That's a a noted doctrine, foundational doctrine in, in Mormonism is that this burning in the bosom tells them that what they believe is true even when the facts of history and the Bible disagree, and they totally do disagree. The difference between that and the faith of biblical Christianity is that we don't believe what we do despite the facts of history, but precisely because of the facts of history. And yet, and yet, here's the clincher is that belief in the historical facts of the gospel are dependent upon an inward awakening of the spirit in the miracle of regeneration. That's exactly what John says in verses 9 through 11. Look what he says. Still puzzling, but still profound. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Because... This is the testimony of God that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony which God has testified concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave to us eternal life and this life is in his son. Now, again, I know, I know exactly what that sounded like. That sounded weird and cryptic. But you see, what, what it really is is deep. You see, we're always talking about how we want to go deep in our study of the Bible, and here's our chance. Let's take it in two parts. First, John tells us that the reason we believe, and this is in your notes, the reason we believe is because of superior persuasion. Superior persuasion. Look again at what he says in verse 9. This is so important. He says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Because this is the testimony of God that he has testified concerning his son. And you see it, right? John has busted out some logic on us, hasn't he? 
There's a syllogism there, an if-then statement. If A is true, then B is true. And look at the if statement. He says, if we receive the testimony of men. And guess what? We totally do, don't we? And what he means is, if we can be persuaded by people by the reality of Christ, about the reality of Christ, if pastors and teachers and scholars and evangelists and moms and dads and friends can persuade us that Christ really is the Savior of the world, and they do, John says, that's great. That's great. And they should do that. And at some level, that is exactly what happened to every single one of us, isn't it? We accepted. We received the testimony of men, and we became a believer, did we not? Someone preached. Someone proclaimed. Someone evangelized. Someone reasoned with us from the scriptures, and we became a believer. And the weight of truth crashed down upon us, and we were persuaded that Jesus Christ is everything he claimed to be. We received the testimony of men. And John says, that's fantastic. It's just that, it's just that the testimony of God is greater. There's logic. If we could be persuaded by people, the persuasion from God is greater. Because what is so staggering to me is that people, get this, can be 100% intellectually convinced that, the, that Christ and the gospel is true and yet still walk away. And people always make a big deal about high school kids leaving for college and abandoning their faith because the arguments of Christianity just weren't persuasive. Have you ever heard that? And, and there's all sorts of stats and people talk about that. And, and, and of course, I'm sure that does happen and that is heartbreaking when it does. But to be totally honest, I have met very few people. In fact, I have met no people who walked away from Christ because of an intellectual objection to Christianity. Rather, most apostates, most apostates I have ever known walked away from Christ still being convinced at some level that it was all still true. It's just there was something in the complex labyrinth of the human soul that could not hold them. says that is, is the testimony of God. Which is what? What is, what is the greater testimony of God? He already told us in verse 6. He's going to tell us again in verse 11. But the testimony of God that is greater than man's is his witness in the soul through the spirit where we are awakened to believe the gospel from the inside out in a saving and effectual way. But you see, God's testimony is greater, not just because it's true and because it's more persuasive, but because God's witness through the spirit, get this, overcomes all hard-hearted resistance and unbelief so that hell-bound sinners can actually see the light 
of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. It is the divine and supernatural light in, imparted to the soul by the Spirit that enables the sinner to believe in a saving way. And maybe you think, okay, okay, if that's true, if that's true, what then does that change about my personal responsibility to proclaim the gospel? What does that change about my responsibility to preach? It doesn't change a single solitary thing. It doesn't change a thing. It doesn't change the responsibility to preach to kids or your grandkids or your co-workers about the reality of the gospel. Rather, we must labor as believers to persuade people with all of the firepower with which we can muster, knowing all the while that the real power to persuade lies in the hands of God himself. That's what John means at the end of verse 9 when he says, because this is the testimony of God that he has testified concerning his son, which brings us second to the supernatural explanation for why we believe. A supernatural explanation. And just to warn you, this is not going to be easy. This is really hard. This is going to be really complex. It's not going to be easy. This is going to demand everything you've got this morning. This is not kindergarten theology. This is Einstein-level, lab-coat-grown-up kind of stuff. And yet it's in the text because the apostle, and i.e. Christ himself, really thinks you need to know this. Because we do. John just told us, verse 9, that the testimony of God is greater than the testimony of men, and that is the reason why you and anyone else believes in Christ. And yet notice what he says in verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has testified concerning his Son. You know that old riddle, conundrum of the chicken and the egg? Remember that, what came first, the chicken or the egg? It's, what that is, it's a little philosophical riddle about the theory of causality. It actually goes back all the way to ancient Greeks. They asked that question. They originated the question. And the nature of the question is, what caused what? What led to what? What is the logical order and progression that explains how things are today? Well, guess what? Verse 10 is a little bit like that riddle. And yet, instead of the chicken and the egg, John uses our faith and God's witness. Because the question is, what came first? What led to what? Did the chicken of our faith come first? Or did the egg of God's witness come first? What is the logical order and progression of how it is that people get saved? And that's the question. And, and John answers that. He answers the question. He solves the riddle. Look very carefully at what he says. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Do, do you see the riddle? Which came first? Which came first? The chicken of our faith 
or the egg of God's testimony. In other words, did we believe first and then come to have God's testimony within us? Or, or is our belief in the Son of God explained by and the result of the testimony of God? And the context makes it exactly clear. He already told us in verse 6. He's going to tell us again in verse 11. It's the internal witness of the Spirit in the soul that is the work of God that enable us to believe the facts of the gospel. I told you this is going to be hard. And yet this is so good, isn't it? Therefore, when John says the one who believes has the testimony, he means, get this now, this is so important, he means that our belief in the Son of God is but the evidence of the inner awakening of the spirit in the soul. In other words, the egg of God's witness came first, then hatched the chicken of our faith as a result. And I understand that's shocking. And, and maybe it seems to conflict with what seems like your experience. But you see, in this chapter that is all about faith, John is laboring to show us that the that internal persuasion that the gospel is true could only come about through divine causation. And think, just, just think about the implications of what it is that John just said. This rocked me, by the way. A couple implications of this. First, God is the one who convinced you that the Bible and the gospel is true. God is the one who convinced you that the Bible and the gospel is true. No man convinced you. God is the one who convinced you. Don't you see, the strength of your faith is based upon the one who convinced you to believe. And although apparent pastor, a book, a scholar, a theologian, an evangelist, a parent, although they were the instrument, the grounds, the grounds of your faith ultimately rests on God himself because as Calvin said, he alone can properly bear witness to his own word. You were persuaded by God himself second implication of this. And you're going to be tempted to almost not believe what I'm about to tell you. Get a load of this. The very fact that you do believe in Christ and the Bible is proof that it is true. The very fact that you believe in Christ and the Bible is proof that it is true. Not that your faith makes it true, it's true whether you believe it or not. But you see, here's the catch. It's that faith is so supernatural. You were never going to do that on your own. It's that faith is so supernatural. The fact that you do believe is evidence of the supernatural work of God. And second, that what you believe is absolutely true. In other words, how do you know? 
that what you believe is true. How do you know? What's the deepest evidence that you can cite for how you know this is true? Well, God spoke, and I believe it. But you see, the ultimate reason I do believe it is because of the supernatural awakening work of God in my soul. That's John's point. That's John's point. Now, now is that going to hold up in a logic argument with an unbeliever? No, probably not. And I don't care. And neither does John. Because his agenda here, his agenda here is to reinforce your faith at the deepest possible level by showing you that the ultimate reason you do believe, if in fact you do, is because of a supernatural work of grace in your soul. Because without that, we would have never believed and been saved. And speaking of unbelief, look what John says. It's exactly what he describes at the end of verse 10. It says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has testified concerning his Son. Now, that's really tricky. But I think John is saying the reason why an unbeliever doesn't believe God's testimony about his Son is because God has not testified in them through his Spirit. I think that's what he's saying. In other words, this is a behind-the-scenes divine explanation for why an unbeliever doesn't believe and why they don't believe is not because the evidence is lacking, but because their eyes have not been opened, which is how we should pray for unbelievers. We should, that's, because that's exactly what conversion is. It's a removal of blindness, it's an awakening of the soul. It's a resurrection from the dead. It is, Ezekiel 36, the removal of the heart of stone and the transplant of a heart of flesh. It is a new birth, a regeneration, a new creation, light being spoken into the soul. Shall I go on? Pray this way for unbelievers, for your kids, for your grandkids, for your coworkers, for your neighbors, maybe even for yourself. Because true, authentic faith is a miracle that God alone can perform, and yet he does so through your preaching and through your praying. And so preach and pray your guts out, knowing that when God saves a soul, it really is God who saves the soul. But speaking of behind the scenes, and I'm almost done, very nearly there, speaking of behind the scenes, I've always loved behind the scenes bonus features on DVDs. You ever watch those? Those behind the scenes bonus features? Because you see, I'm not merely interested. I'm, in addition to being interested in the film, I'm also interested in how films are made, how scenes are shot, how plots and characters are developed. That, that's very interesting to me. In fact, the most intriguing thing to me is actors who do unbelievable things to prepare for a role. Have you heard about any of these things? Robert De Niro once gained 40 pounds of flab to play a washed-up boxer. One actor lost over 60 pounds to play a POW in Vietnam. 
One guy learned kung fu for a role. Tom Cruise learned to speak Japanese for a role. One guy spent three sleepless nights in solitary confinement in a prison to prepare for a role of being interrogated. It's very interesting to me. See, see all these things that you learn behind the scenes make the movie that much more meaningful. And the point is, verse 11 is the behind-the-scenes bonus feature about how we came to believe, and when you learn this, it makes your salvation that much more meaningful. Look what he says. He says, and this is the testimony that God gave to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, do you see the connection? Do you see the connection between this and verse 10? John just told us that those who believe do so because of the testimony of God within them. And in verse 11, he defines the testimony. He says what the testimony is. Look again at what he says. And this, this right here, I'm going to define the testimony for you. What is it? What is it, John? What is the work that you did to enable us to believe? Answer, God gave to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And there it is. There it is. The deepest reason you believe in Jesus, if in fact you do believe. Namely, that God gave to you eternal life. And maybe you're thinking, wait a second, I... I thought John said the witness of verse 6 was the internal work of the Spirit. And that that's what awakened our souls to believe. And here John says the witness is when God gave to us eternal life. So which is it? Is the witness the awakening of the Spirit? Or is the witness when God gave to us eternal life? And if John all of a sudden appeared here in a resurrected body, it'd be bizarre. But I think he would say... Same diff. Same diff. Those are one and the same. Those are, those are two sides of the same coin. And think about it. Put all the pieces together here. Let's, let's put all this together. Here's what's happening. The greater testimony of God, verse 9, that enabled us to believe in the water and the blood of Christ, verse 6, was the witness of God through the Spirit that imparted to us the gift of eternal life. Verse 11. That's, that's, that's putting all the pieces together. I'll say that again. You really need to feel this. The greater testimony of God, verse 9, that enabled us to believe in the water and blood of Christ, verse 6, was the witness of God through the Spirit that imparted to our souls the gift of eternal life, verse 11. And what that did was opened our eyes and we got saved. That is your testimony. That is how every single one of you came to believe through the imparting of life into your soul. That's the behind-the-scenes bonus feature about our faith in John's letter. 
And what that's designed to do is to make your faith and your salvation that much more meaningful. The question is, did it work? Did it work? Does that help you this morning? To hear and to know that God loved you that much that he would go to such great lengths to save you from eternal woe and despair? Does that help you this morning? To know that ranking right up there with the creation of the universe and the parting of the Red Sea is the sovereign power of God that intervened in your life and saved you from destruction. Does it help you this morning to know that this is not a God who asks people's permission to save them, but that he raises souls from the dead without their permission and without their consent? That doesn't mean we're not responsible to believe. We're 100% responsible to believe. We're just saying that too is a gift of God. And maybe, just maybe the question actually is, listen very carefully, do you have eternal life at all? Do you have authentic faith at all? Because in verse 12, John makes it very, very clear that there are but two kinds of people living in the world. There are those who have the Son, and they have life. And there are those who don't have the Son, and they don't have life. They're blind, they are dead, they are condemned, they are lost. If you don't have the sun this morning, literally the only thing standing in your way is you. And whatever it is you think is, has more value and worth than Christ. Because right now, Jesus Christ stands ready to save. Full of power, full of love, full of pity, ready to apply the proceeds of his death to anyone who calls out to him in repentance and faith. And so if you have not done so this morning, won't you call out to him in repentance and faith? Oh Lord, we are grateful to enter into a 700 level class of theological laboratory of this text. This stuff is not easy, Lord, but God, this is good for us. It is good for us to think deep thoughts of the Bible after the Bible. And Lord, I just pray, I just pray that, that something would stick, something would be Velcro in our souls because of this text. I pray that at the very least, oh Lord, we would walk away with a greater thankfulness and trembling over the miracle that you had to do to enable us to, to believe. It wasn't just that we came to the conclusions on our own and by ourselves, apart from your intervention, figured it out. That's not what happened. You rescued us in every sense of the term. 
And Lord, I pray that that would propel us, propel us to speak, propel us to preach, propel us to witness, propel us to evangelize. Freed from fear, freed from intimidation, freed from clever arguments, and that we would place our trust in the power of your word. We thank you for this time together. In your son's mighty name we pray.